What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. But eventually I sort of gave in to my entrepreneurial desire to have my own business and, and to be master of my own destiny. After three months, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, I wish I'd done this five years ago. The business has 514 assets, 21 of which are in Ireland. And our property portfolio is currently valued at somewhere between 2.7 and 2.8 billion pounds. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. And that is just a small handful of highlights from our guest this week. You see, not many people will ever grow a portfolio to 100 million in value, and even fewer will ever reach the rarefied air of a 1 billion valuation. And so I think you'll agree hitting almost 3 billion in value is pretty exceptional. My guest today is Harry Hyman of PHP Group, which is based in the UK, but which has a growing footprint here in Ireland. In our conversation today, I'm going to be discussing how he's grown his business over the last number of years, the importance of recognising just who is paying you rent, the extra value that certain investors place on the source of that income, and in general, just how to reduce your risk, tips on mindset, tips on the habits that have helped Harry to be as successful as he has been. And I think you're going to get a huge value from this uh, discussion. So, guys, without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Harry Hyman. It's good to have you here, Harry. Um, we have a, an international audience. And so there'll be a, various people in the UK that will have heard of you and your company. But for people that may not have heard. Can you tell us what you do and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your company? Sure. Well, Primary Health Properties is a UK-listed real estate investment trust, and we focus on um, primary care buildings, that's GP surgeries, let back to GPs, general practitioners, and in some cases, the NHS. But the secrets of the company is that the NHS reimburses the GPs um, the rents that they pay us and therefore at the current time something like 89 percent of our total rent roll is reimbursed by the british and irish governments uh, we cover about 7 million people in the uk eight percent of the population are registered at one of our centers and unlike other healthcare systems in the world you really have to be registered with an nhs gp in order to access further aspects of care um, and so the GP is the first port of call in what's called the patient journey. So the business has 514 assets, 21 of which are in Ireland and the balance are in the United Kingdom. Um, we've been going as a public company since 1996. The high quality income is what attracts the investors. We've grown our dividend in every one of the last 27 years. Um, and our property portfolio is currently valued at somewhere between 2.7 and 2.8 um, billion pounds. Uh, and what strikes me as very interesting is that there is still a huge job of work to be done because so much of the real estate out of which primary care is delivered is not fit for purpose and needs to be modernized and needs to be made bigger 
in order to accommodate the much wider range of services that the NHS wants to transfer out of expensive and inflexible hospitals into the primary care um, arena. Very interesting. Uh, I mean, that's a huge portfolio and it's taken you 27 years to assemble. I, yeah. The first question that comes to mind, and normally we, we go into a little bit of backstory, but before mm. we do, I mean, healthcare very much part of the uh, conversation, but would you consider yourself uh, a real estate developer stroke investor, or would you consider yourself a healthcare specialist? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I really consider myself as probably neither. Uh, right. I'm not I'm not a doctor and I'm not a specialist property person, although after nearly 30 years in it, clearly I know something about it. I consider myself to be a sort of entrepreneurial financier. And I kind of spotted um, that you could buy a gilt-edged, effectively like T-bill type income stream um, at the wrong price, i.e. a cheaper price, than you could if you were actually buying an income stream let to the British or Irish governments. Um, armed with that, I felt that there would be a market in um, with investors who would be interested to buy into that sort of premium uh, income flow. And although in the last few months, maybe the last year and a half, it's been tough going because interest rates have gone up. Eventually, interest rates will come down, but our income will stay the same or go up because it's linked to real assets. Yeah. And so unlike a bond or, or a gilt in UK speak, our income grows and it's currently growing quite um, well. Uh, and that over the long term will produce superior returns. So I think I consider myself more as a financier rather than a property or, or certainly not a healthcare expert. <laughs> and Harry, can you just take us back uh, to what what kind of brought you into the world of business and finance and, and real estate? Sure. Well, uh, going back to when I finished university, which is eons ago, I think I graduated in 1978, uh, uh, um, that's 1978, not 1878. Uh, I, I um, did actually stay on and do an extra year of research with a view to becoming some sort of, um, you know, academic in historical geography, but soon found that that really wasn't, I wasn't cut out for that. And when you look at things that happen in your life, it kind of my decision to stop that in May uh, 79 kind of coincided with the election of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, which seems like a long time ago, but she really did revolutionise and was a very radical shift from the early 70s, which was dominated by labour disputes and unionisation, and Britain had the three-day week. Uh, yeah. It was a rather awful place. Uh, and she kind of liberated the British um, economy. And on the back of that, I went off to become a chartered accountant because my dad uh, fathers are very important, aren't they? Um, he said I should get some form of business qualification, and he was right. And I qualified as a chartered accountant at what was then Price Waterhouse, and then spent an amazing 11 years with a very entrepreneurial, very um, clever financier called Michael Goddard, who had a public company called Baltic, uh, which had nothing to do with the Baltic, but it had a lot to do with financial techniques, asset finance, property finance, fund management, investment management, insurance broking. And it was a very dynamic time. It was the time of the Big Bang, radicalization or revolution in financial services. And you really had to be on your toes to keep up with Michael uh, and the company. And I progressed very quickly. But 
come the recession in 92, 1992, uh, which some will remember, which was a really terrible time caused by After the, the currency shattering the Deutschmark. Yeah, wasn't that, that when when the bring the British pound was yeah. crashed out? Yeah. Yeah, and interest rates went to 15 or 16 percent one afternoon, went up three, four <laughs> percent. Shades of Liz, shades of Liz Trust, but actually worse because it kind of destroyed a lot of British industry. Anyway, we got through that. And I kind of said to myself, this is very difficult. And if it's going to be this difficult, I might as well do it for my own account. And I discovered somewhere in that journey about GPs having their rent reimbursed to them by the government. And so I decided to go and get some backing to start that as an idea. <clears throat> and a couple of years later, I floated uh, primary health properties on the AIM market in 96. We were one of the first companies on AIM. And then in those days, in order to qualify for a tax wrapper, like um, what were then called PEPs, but you are now called ISAs, you had to be on the main market. So we went to the main market in 98 when we had a three-year track record. And then on we went. So being a chartered accountant has been a very important skill for me. Working for dynamic, clever people was very challenging and very good. Um, but eventually I sort of gave in to my entrepreneurial desire to have my own business uh, and and to be, you know, master of my own destiny, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I can imagine a lot of listeners are resonating with that. Like a lot of people just they want to break free of the shackles of employment and, and, and do their own thing but describe the first year when you went out on your own like was it very difficult was it were you concerned about whether this would work or were you confident uh i i did have some outside backers because i i was 37 and i had a family and two children and i had to pay the bills so it wasn't like i was in my 20s and could afford to be um slightly more um uh, more of a risk taker um but i kind of felt after three months i remember thinking to myself gosh i wish i'd done this five years ago um but then i got ill i i, I had non-hodgkin's lymphoma oh, wow. uh, which thank goodness was treated successfully and i think that kind of galvanized me in in an important way because up till then um, I did a very conventional, professional sort of career and everything was going along smoothly. And I think when you have something like that, that means you could be dead. Uh, and I think in retrospect, my surgeon, who I've raised a lot of money for, or consultant at the Royal Marsden, he said, you know, it was a 50-50 chance of you surviving. It kind of makes you feel and realise that life is not a rehearsal. So you need to get on with things. And I think I've adopted you know, not not to a ridiculous extent or to do things that are crazy, but yeah. you, you you need to seize the opportunity, carpe diem, because who knows what tomorrow might bring. And we can see that in world affairs today, can't we? Very much so, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very uh yeah, this, it's, I, I completely resonate. One of my friends re just died very recently of uh, cancer and yeah. he he was going strong, businessman, everything like that, uh going strong until july and was diagnosed in july and as you know just in the last couple of weeks gone you know terrible terrible, terrible such a short notice to kind of get yeah. your affairs in order and all that kind of stuff you know yeah yeah anyway anyway i managed to get through that with the support of my family and also the support of the wonderful um cancer therapists at, at the royal marsden i do continue to do fundraising for them and you know what's amazing is that i was talking to him a couple of years ago and he said this thing that when you came in with this in 1995, you're only 50% likely to survive. 
But he told me that if I had presented today with the same condition, I'd be 99% likely to be okay. And what that shows is the benefit of medical research. So crazily, governments don't support medical research too much. But every pound that is is raised really, I think, is very valuable in helping move particularly cancer therapies, but all sorts of other medical research forward. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, In fact, generally speaking, if you just look at, you know, people see the headlines in the news and they see, you know, war breaking out and stuff. And people kind of have this feeling like that we're going backwards. But in terms of medical research and technology advances and stuff like that, we are so far advanced now compared to, you know, 50 years ago, even it's just incredible. Well, you know, one of the problems of the NHS is that it was created in 1947-8, when the average life expectancy of a, a British male was 60, 65, was five years, 65, and would die at 70. And now, of course, people are living much, much longer. So one of the great things from a business standpoint for PHP is the demographic drivers are absolutely fantastic. We both countries, Ireland and Britain, have a growing population. We both have an aging population, and we both have populations with an ever higher incidence of chronic disease. And, and, you know, in the future, I think a lot of healthcare is going to be about prevention. So there are several million type 2 diabetes sufferers in the UK, 95% of which is all reversible through diet and exercise, which is quite extraordinary. And, you know, artificial intelligence, far from being a threat in some cases, might actually be very, very beneficial because it will speed up the rate at which drugs trials can be carried out by computer. It will speed up the rate at which diagnostics can be done, um, which is great. But on the other hand, it will therefore ensure that people live even longer. Yeah. Uh, so the demand on healthcare systems is not going down. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have that. Like in terms of a business model, it seems like I was going to think I was asked, I was going to ask, like, what you know, I've noticed over the years in my own career that there are some business models that are you you hit the sweet spot and everything is perfect mm. but then the market evolves or the business mm. model evolves and then it's no longer there's no opportunity any longer mm. has that happened with in your career so far like have you had to change course or change direction yeah. yeah i think you have to respond to external sort of system shocks the the biggest one of which uh well we've had two i guess the biggest one was actually the global financial crisis in 2007 8 yeah. when you know it was a big surprise to me and frankly probably everyone who worked in uh, was in business in britain all of the banks were suddenly bankrupt uh and not having access to finance meant we had to pause and we spent a lot of time renegotiating with banks it wasn't that there was anything wrong with our business it was the fact that they were uh in in trouble uh, and we're not able to provide new or additional finance for a bit but you know governments on both sides of the irish sea uh got to grips with it and and that you know reasonably soon passed in 2010 or 12 and we got on with life and more recently we've had to adapt to the very sudden and very rapid uh increase in inflation which has led to bond yields going up and as a result of that, our new business program in Britain, at any rate, is on pause. We're still buying new stock in Ireland. And we bought a quite large £30 million pro- property in Ballincollig near Cork uh, the other day. Um, but we've, we've had to focus a lot more effort on rental growth, on asset management opportunities, and take the emphasis off uh, purchasing and developing 
at the moment. But as rates come down, we see that restarting. So, yeah, you you just have to adapt uh, and run your business in accordance with what go with what is going on in the world and the sort of macro position. And when you're looking at sites to buy, um, do you hmm. do you look at partnering with you know local developers, or are you looking at a greenfield sites and start from scratch? Well, in a way, the word development is a bit of a misnomer for us because we build out once an agreement for lease is in place. So, of course, there's building risk, but we're not building speculatively because in both Britain and Ireland, everything is built to order and there has to be an HSE in Ireland or an NHS agreement to take the space before anyone will start building um, a healthcare building. But to answer your question more deliberately, uh, more specifically rather, um, they tend to go in a, um, in Britain anyway with new housing developments. Right. Uh, in Britain, we have a, a Section One Hundred Six agreement, which means the the master developer has to give something back to the community in order to kind of like pay in inverted commas for the right to develop. And quite often, they don't want to build a new medical centre or school, uh, and they leave that to us. So we step in their shoes and move that project um, forward. Got it. And in the Irish case, is it very different? Yes, because the geography of Ireland outside Dublin is, um, sounds a bit weird this <laughs> me telling you this, Gavin, but, but you know, Ireland is a much more rural, um, uh, it's got a much more rural characteristic, and therefore the Slaunter Care Programme, which is aiming to have 200 new primary care centres, is very much about decentralising services like diagnostics, day case mm -hmm. surgery, uh, all sorts of things in order to save people having to travel to Cork or Dublin. Uh, and we have a sort of set of regional towns which act very much as hubs. The towns themselves are quite small in population terms, but they serve a sort of huge hinterland uh, of maybe twenty five to 40,000 people. Uh, and of course, in Dublin as well, there's a requirement for more like British medical centres, uh, again, serving 25,000, 30,000 people ago. So it's a little bit different, but the principle is the same because, you know, technology has moved um, the medical world forward a lot. And so much more is possible to do in a primary care or daycare uh, basis. And also COVID, I think, taught both of those governments that having everything centralised in hospitals was not a good idea when you were telling people not to go to hospital unless you had COVID. And yeah. one of the reasons in Britain that there's such a big um, uh, backlog of procedures is because of that lack of diagnostics for almost two years yeah yeah big problem all right yeah, yeah. well COVID did shake up the whole market uh, like one of the other things that I can remember the remember this whole kind of scramble for PPE yeah. um, and it was we had to send planes off to China to collect them and all this kind of stuff and I think what's what that has done is woken up governments to supply chain and yeah. the fact that they don't want to have to be at you know to have to rely on big journeys like that they'd rather take it on site and so yeah. i don't know whether that that seems to have adjusted the the view of logistics and warehousing for storage and things like that yes yeah that's right and in a similar way um medical centers now are designed so that part of the center could be used for what's called hot procedures and and a lot of it can be used for cold uh, by just simply having maybe two entrances and a designated area for people if there is another pandemic or, or a resurgence in COVID. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that also brought other challenges because all through COVID, people were telling me, well, no, you won't need your buildings anymore. Everything will be done 
uh, on more teams. But unfortunately, that 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 isn't the case. Of course, the initial triage, the first meeting, the first um, consultation diagno di diagnosis can be done um, online and remotely. But um, for instance, in Britain, there are already more face to face consultations a month than there were pre COVID because people have complex conditions, comorbidities, it's called in the jargon. And adjusting their drugs regime or their treatment is very difficult to do. And we we kind of forget that a huge swathe of the population doesn't have an iPhone. They don't necessarily have broadband. And if you have Parkinson's or dementia, it's actually quite hard to yeah. handle your mobile equipment. And, and if you're going to tell someone that they've got some terrible thing wrong with them, I don't think you're going to do it online. You'll rather call them in so that you can counsel them and tell them face to face. And also doctor friends of mine tell me that seeing people, all of someone, so the holistic view is very important. So you can tell how they walk, whether they smell of alcohol, whether <laughs> of cigarettes. Uh, you know, you can tell an awful lot more about somebody when you see them face to face in a in a in a real meeting rather yeah. than just online, which is which is very two dimensional. I think that probably sums it up. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I, you can't beat the face to face, like you say. Yeah. But I have heard that, you know, there are obviously these technology entrepreneurs working on, you know, devices that you just simply breathe into it or whatever. And that will take nose or whatever, you know. But yeah, I don't but, yeah, but, you know, 15 percent roughly of our of our of our portfolio is used for mental health. 15% okay. is used for what's called social prescribing. And this could be teaching people how to do exercises, teaching people how to cook, believe it or not, um, teaching people that having eight pints of lager <laughs> or Guinness every day and a few bars and crisps is not going to be very good for their for their diet. Long term. Uh, yeah. yeah, long term. And, and so people, need, you know, I, I don't think, we're, you know, our, our medical centers are fuller than ever. And, and they nearly all renew and extend in physical footprint because of this extra demand to incorporate the services that are coming out of hospitals. Yeah, yeah. And tell me this, Harry, the, 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 like the design of each of your healthcare centres, yeah. is, it, is it a template that you just roll out or no. is each one different? No, I think a very important thing point to make here is that primary care, there's no, it's not a one size fits all. It would be like playing a game of golf with one club, tricky. Yeah. Uh, and what's right for an isolated rural community in Scotland is not going to be right for an inner suburb of London or Dublin. And these are very important locality-based buildings, and therefore the local people, the doctors, the patients, want to have a say in how they look and how they're laid out. So, you know, primary care encompasses a huge range uh in 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 methodologies as to how it's actually delivered so in a way it would be great if everything were modular and could be fitted into one design but it doesn't kind of work like that and when you say that people they they want to say in a like do you actually have a consulting sort of period with them before you go for planning permission or uh the, there's something in britain called the local medical Count, uh, committee council and that has to approve all changes to health services greater than a certain amount so you know the local practitioners patient groups are involved very much 
in in determining the shape of their service and 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 you know the nhs is such a monolithic organization employing 1.3 million people and with a budget of over 150 million uh, billion pounds uh, a year that it really does have to be decentralized otherwise it would just never work unless it was a sort of stalinist autocratic uh, approach which nobody really wants yeah 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 uh, so harry you've been working with investors since well, is it is 1994 when you started working with investors? Yeah. Well, it's when I started, um, I left Baltic, but I was working with investors and speaking to investors from 1983. Wow. So you've uh, got it. And tell uh, us, I mean, because a lot of my listeners will write to me and ask me about, you know, raising money from yeah. outside capital and things like that. I mean, over your over the years, you've obviously... You've identified what works when you're speaking with investors of all sizes and shapes. You know, can you tell us what would you say are the top five considerations? Well, I think a very important one is consistency of message and sticking to the plan and trying not to deviate from it. I think that's very important. And quite often investors, particularly in the public markets, will want to see you two or three times before making a decision to invest. Um, so I think it's a bit naive on the public markets if you walk into a meeting with an investor and expect them to buy the shares tomorrow. They're going to listen to what you have to say and then maybe a couple of times later decide whether or not that was a good idea. Um, I think also what's also what, what, what has changed a lot during that period I've been involved is the is the um, size and approachability of private equity. Right. Uh, and I think that in many cases is a more appropriate um, way to get started, maybe friends and family for a trading operation or an idea, and then moving on to some sort of um, Series A and then Series B in due course before going public. And I think also people now, I think the public markets have very high size criteria. So, you know, smaller American uh, cap companies is like one to eight billion dollars which wow. <laughs> which in anyone's language is quite big yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 and and you know of course america's a different market um much bigger in scale but public markets have a huge amount of compliance uh and uh to to cope with and therefore the company's got to be relatively big in order to accommodate that yeah so I'm, not, I'm not sure that was five but there's a couple of a couple of points uh, yeah. there, and and I think also another uh, lesson that I've learned, which is not so much to do with public markets, but I think is a good one, is employ the best people you can, and don't be afraid of employing people who are better, or could do things something better than you feel you can. Of course, as an entrepreneur, you probably feel you can do everything the best. Yeah, but actually, you probably can't, uh, yeah. and you might be better having more of a team approach to it yeah i think though one of the one of the strengths of an entrepreneur is the vision and yeah. the 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 kind of conductor or the orchestral kind of conductor yeah. approach and you you can have a little bit of expertise in everything yeah whereas you employ the experts who are domain experts in in each field but they couldn't do what you do no i think gavin that's a really interesting point because i was just about to say that i compare it to conducting an orchestra uh or or when i talk to my own team i think it's a bit like playing rugby which is one of my favorite sports you know you could be the world's best winger but unless you have a good scrum you're not going to get any ball 
Yeah. So um, you, we all got to move together as a team. Yeah. Uh, and and again, you can have virtuoso players in an orchestra, but they're not all playing in time and not all playing to the same kind of general approach that the conductor's giving you. It would not sound good. Yeah, it's so true. Um, on the topic of opera, we just mentioned there, I noticed that you're, you founded the International Opera Awards about yeah. 10 or 11 years ago. Yeah. Can you tell us what motivated that? And uh, well, um, I do have an interest in a business that actually runs commercial awards, part of the publishing um, part of uh, my private company, Nexus. And and awards have been very successful and are very successful. And I was wondering one evening at the opera, when it may not have been that interesting, uh, why there was no set of international opera awards. So foolishly, to some extent, or typically, I, I took some counsel and went off and set them up. Um, and they've evolved. And, and now I'm pleased to say that the opera world really likes them. And, and, and you know, this year we've just had last week the 23 awards in Warsaw, which is an amazing city, wow. uh, with the National Opera of Poland um, and their leader, Waldemar Dambrowski. And we had a whole evening, a bit like the Oscars, in the Teatro Wilki, which was brilliant. Uh, and everyone wants to win. I think if you if you stand at the bottom of a flight of escalators or you want to get onto a crowded train, uh, it's not after you, after you, after you. But it's kind of human, the desire to, to, to win, I think, is very important. And not only the desire to win, but also recognition in front of your peer group. Yeah. So um, the, 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 the awards have evolved. They're now in their 12th year. We give out 23 or so awards, best conductor, best uh, revived work, best female singer, best male singer, um, best designer. And, and opera is an amazing art form. It probably involves 300 people to put on an opera performance because not only is there an orchestra with a conductor, but there's a chorus. There yeah. are principal singers. There are people that do the costume, the lighting, the sets, front of house. It, it's a big effort to put it on. And I think opera combines the best of drama and music and talks about basic human emotions. And I also feel that culture can be an antidote to angst. You know, we live in a very angstful world, uh, I think, driven by social media, driven by the pandemic, driven by the awful conflagrations we see in Ukraine uh, and in the Middle East. And going to see a play, a film, reading a great book, seeing an opera can resonate with you and take your brain out of its normal um, patterns. And I, I think it was Shakespeare who talked about the harmony of the spheres. Music actually does something to the brain or it does something yeah. to the brain anyway. And it can really lift you out of your everyday cares. It's funny you say that I can res resonate, but not so much with music, but I go and I run in the mornings and I right. like to... I like to run to the top of a, of a nearby mountain that's next to my house. And it's that exact thing. It's just getting away from the pattern. It's a pattern interrupt, essentially. Yeah. And you just, there's a creative flood that kind of comes with that, that uh, is very refreshing. Yeah. Incidentally, I, I I was trying to remember the name. I, I had an opera singer 
who turned real estate developer from New York. His name is Joshua Benayam, uh, Benayam or right. anyway, but um, it's about a year and a half ago when I interviewed him, but uh, he's created a, a, a luxury real estate, a residential real estate sort of business in the US. Um, anyway, that's an aside. But I was interested, you know, the the motivation to create an awards yeah. was was it to because of your interest in opera, you know, it get that makes you gives you access, or was yeah, in a, in, a, in in a way, yes. I, I I'm no longer shunned when I walk into opera houses because people <laughs> are afraid of upsetting me. But I'm actually not a judge at all uh, because I don't know enough about it, candidly, and. My partner, John Allison, who, who's the editor of Opera Magazine, he assembles an international jury. Right. Uh, but going back to motivation, I really wanted the awards to be successful because I wanted to raise money to give bursaries to aspiring talent in opera because it's a very, very, very tough gig, particularly when right. younger people have left music school uh, or the National Opera Studio it's very hard for them to continue their career because they're waiting to be discovered. They're waiting to have roles. Uh, and, you know, even a relatively small amount of three to 5,000 pounds can mean, can make the difference between someone carrying on and someone stopping. And although, you know, for a lot of people, that will sound like a ridiculously small amount of money for someone from a humbler background, not with the bank of mum and dad, to support them, so non-middle-class uh, background, it's essential that they get this sort of um, this, this sort of backing, and that's I think what keeps me going because doing the international opera was actually a labour of love because it's quite hard. Uh, it's not as easy as commercial awards, um, but there are some benefits like like getting to know the singers and conductors and directors and producers uh, in a much better way. So in a way, it's a it's a it's a lovely thing to do. But it is it has got its own challenges. Yeah, no, very interesting. Uh, what I wanted to ask you, Harry, is, you know, one of the things that I've spoken about at length on this podcast is resilience. And uh, like I went through that. You mentioned 2008, the financial crash. That was devastating for me. I went through an enormous kind of fall in terms of my pro property portfolio and my wealth. I ended up negative equity for many years. Um what have you found over the years yourself in terms of mindset, uh, resilience? You know, I presume you've experienced the ups and downs at times and stuff like that. How, how have you dealt with them? Uh, well, I, I think a number of ways. I, I particularly am interested in, in history and, and by birth I'm, I'm Jewish. Uh, and I consider myself to be a cultural Jew rather than a religious Jew. And I think of the people who survived concentration camps and you just sort of think to yourself, how could that be? And, yeah. you know, I think I've got it tough because the bus is late or the service is slow in a restaurant or, you know, my shoelace is broken. Um, these people had it very tough. And in fact, going to Warsaw uh, showed me that all, all, all too vividly, you know, the, not only the ghetto, where the whole place was liquidated by the Germans, the Nazis. Um, but the Warsaw Uprising, which came uh, a year or two later, where these brave Polish people took to the streets, literally, with their with their bare hands to fight panzer tanks, wow, yeah. it is like 
unbelievable. So I think put things in perspective is probably a better way of 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 looking at it. And also, uh, one of my confidence once gave me some really good advice, which is to turn the other cheek. Uh, and occasionally, you don't feel like turning the other cheek. Someone has upset you, and you want to pile in. But actually, it's a better approach to take a very deep breath and think, well, I could do that, but actually, why don't I just pause? It's not weakness. In fact, I think it's like a sign of maturity in some ways uh, and just go, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Uh, that was a mistake. Or or just use it as an opportunity to, to put things in perspective and take a more measured approach because in reality, losing your temper and, and getting into a fight it's going to do anyone any good in the in 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 the short or medium term. It's funny that you took the words out of my mouth in terms of perspective. I, I have a you know I I do a talk on resilience in in real estate, and one of the first things that I talk about is uh, perspective, getting perspective. And I have a I have a slide that I put up, and it's it's of I think it's a photograph from Coventry in 1942 yeah. after after it had been leveled yeah and uh you kind of say do you really have a problem when you see this photograph yeah. and you understand what people had to endure yeah do you really have a problem like <laughs> really and uh, you're going to complain about you know that the that the petrol ran out or that the you know the pump is a little bit more expensive this month than last month yeah i mean nobody likes being walked over but i think putting things in perspective uh, and and thinking about people who've got it a lot a hell of a lot worse than yourself is yeah. is a good thing to put into your mind yeah uh even if it, even if it doesn't actually calm you down too much but it, you know we're, we're all in incredibly privileged positions generally speaking um in the western world and when you look at the terrible droughts and warfare in sub-saharan africa yeah when you look at the ghastly scenes in um in the middle east and in um in Great. Ukraine and Crimea, you just think, wow. Yeah, we we're, are we're, we're, we're all very privileged and lucky. Long may it continue. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, Harry, I, I usually go into habits and you know you're 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 you've been you've had a very successful business for now 27 years and, and probably prior to that. Yeah. Can you just outline what you believe are the habits and behaviors that have really stood to your success? Like what, what has been a kind of a habit of yours that really you think would be probably one of the most, um, what okay. are the primary reasons Yeah, that you're successful? Okay, well, I, I think there's nothing like hard work and diligence. And I'm a, I'm a great list maker. Uh, I make a list in the morning of the things that I have to do and I'm and I try and make it comprehensive and I try and put the hardest ones first on the basis that I'm not going to put them off. And if I have to make a tricky call or have a tricky meeting, uh, I'd like to do that and get that out of the way as soon as possible. And I, I do that every day. And actually, if I wake up in the middle of the night worrying about something, uh, I write it down. Uh, I, I, you know, I might get up, find a piece of paper and write it down. And then that seems to kind of keep my brain happy that it, it, we're not going to forget about it. And rather than spending the rest of the night lying awake, uh, I tend to sleep better. And I think the second thing that I would, I would sort of give as a tip for people is to network. 
I I like networking. I will not turn down um, an invitation, even though I can't really see what the relevance is. I like to go. I like to meet people because you just never know. Uh, and and in my life, I you know I don't want to call it kismet, karma, whatever. Uh, maybe not karma, kismet has played an enormous role. And if if you don't go and you don't meet people and you just sit at home and mope uh you're not going to get very far and i i like that maybe i'm just an outgoing person and, and you know quite recently on a project uh i won't go into all the detail but i was thinking do i really want to go to this drinks party tonight i don't think so no it's going to be you know it's going to be crowded i'd rather go home and watch telly but <laughs> actually i went and i met someone who who was right just the person i needed to meet and i felt to myself well there you go if you hadn't gone, you'd never in a month of Sundays have met that person. Um, and that, that's just what happens. Yeah, serendipity. There's a lot to be said for yeah, it. Yeah, serendipity. That's a very good word. Yeah, very much. And and in terms of mindset, like what's, I mean, we obviously, we talked about perseverance and yeah. uh, getting perspective and stuff. Yeah. But in terms of looking ahead and, you know, your your mindset around planning you know the months ahead or the year oh, ahead or anything oh. like that what how do you do you have any kind of habits or you know well, I, th I think it's a good idea to have a plan and it's a good idea to to make it to have some milestones along the way um and it's a good idea to celebrate some of your successes along the way i'm not against doing that um and um i'm a great collector and probably consume too much wine <laughs> uh, but I, I I think wine is a great creation. And what would life be without um, the occasional glass of wine? Nice. Yeah, 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 for sure. And um, it's uh, how do you uh, like how do you hold yourself accountable? Are you are you very strict with yourself around your, you know, setting yourself goals and tasks and things like that? Yeah, I think so. And, and in many ways, perhaps I'm a perfectionist. Um, I, can relate. I, I had. Um, Neither of my parents, sadly, uh, uh, are, are with us anymore. But I had quite pushy parents in the nicest sense of the word. Uh, and I remember one day when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, I came I came home and said to my dad, you know, I got 95% in the maths test. And he said, well, what's wrong with 100? At the time, it was quite upsetting. But actually, I kind of get what he meant uh i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend that as a technique for motivating children yeah but it's it's kind of you know you can always do better can i mean what drove roger bannister to run the sub four minute mile talking yeah. about running you've got to have some objectives and you know i i guess it's your personality i'm just not happy with you know Mediocre. We, there's always new challenges it's like php is 2.8 billion of property so why aren't we 3 billion yeah uh and and we want to grow our dividend etc cetera, etc cetera. there's always things to be done and and um you know there's more patience to be to be covered and and i think now giving things back to the community like doing the opera awards uh and, and doing mentoring and things like that which i do is very rewarding and i i feel that you can always do a bit more do you have a a kind of a guiding sort of purpose or mission that you kind of hold yourself to? Uh, well, I'd like I'd like people to think that I'd achieved something, which I think we can say that are part of the way towards that, anyway. Uh, and I think it's it would be nice eventually for people to say that was a life well lived.
Yeah, I can relate with that. Yeah. And, yeah not everyone, not everyone is fortunate enough to be able to do that. Sometimes people's lives are taken away before they finished. And carpe diem, I think, is a really good uh, phrase because you just never know. Yeah. Uh, and never put off doing today whatever the right phrase is that you could do today instead of leaving it for tomorrow because you know who who knows no. what happens tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm conscious of time, uh, Harry. I was I mean normally the the, the final question that I have, and oh. this will be uh, we we've covered so many nuggets there to, this evening. You might be sort of finding it hard to kind of grab one, but I, I usually take people back to if you had the opportunity to speak with. 20 year old Harry uh, knowing now what you know what advice would you give that 20 year old uh, be bolder earlier in your life don't wait till you're 37 yeah <laughs> and what time what age do you think you should you could have started in terms of convincing uh, investors and things well you need a bit of experience don't you but maybe yeah. five years earlier I don't know the world's a different place now from what it was then um, it's easy to look back uh, and be critical but uh I, I i actually do remember sitting in my office at the time having done the job having done left for three to six months thinking god you know i'm enjoying this i should have done this ages ago um so when the time is right for people but seize the opportunity yeah seize the day yeah harry it's been a real pleasure um if anyone wanted to learn more about you or your business what's mm. the best way to find out I think have a look at the PHP website, which is www.phpgroup.co.uk. And um, it's very easy to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and I, some... I nearly always reply to LinkedIn messages. I'll put um, some uh, I'll put some uh, links in the show right. notes so people okay. can find you. Yeah. And... Terrific. Uh, Harry, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for your wisdom and insights today and uh, wish you the, the best of luck. And next time you're in Ireland, if you want to yeah. meet up, <laughs> let me that's know. A great, that's a great idea, Gavin. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Cheers. So I hope you found today's conversation with Harry Hyman both inspiring and informative. A number of super uh, tips and strategies and tactics that you can implement in your own career, no matter what stage you are at. Obviously, risk mitigation and the source of your income. For those of you who are starting out and haven't quite got a grasp of some of those concepts yet, you may find it uh, useful to have a look at my programs and courses, which I put a link to in the show notes below. Uh, this is especially a good week for you to have a look at it because I have some Black Friday offers. I've created a couple of insane value bundles that I think you're going to find irresistible. And so I would suggest you check them out down below. Um, I'll be back here same time next week. And yes, those of you who are regular listeners, you will notice that we are back on the scheduled timetable. And that is commitment that I have going forward from now. So guys, take care and see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the join my tribe thing over on the right hand side this will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter 
All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.